Content warning. This series will discuss topics that may bring up painful experiences for you. Please take the time to surround yourself with good medicines. If need be, pause the playback and go for a walk, stretch, have a glass of water, and come back to the show when you feel comfortable. Welcome to the Métis Speaker Series. I'm your host, Darian Kovacs. On this podcast series, we will be exploring learning, healing, and rebuilding within the Métis community. Our goal is to create awareness of and generate discussion about Métis issues, as well as how to heal from and move forward in a healthy way. We hope to reduce Métis invisibility in BC through the personal stories from our Métis community members. This show is brought to you by Métis Nation BC and Jelly Marketing. Charlie, appreciate you being here. As we get started, tell us a bit about yourself and kind of your experience in the Métis community. Well, I am Charlie Kerr. I am a musician, an actor, a writer, and my mom is Métis. She always taught us to be really proud of it, me and my brother. And yeah, since I can remember, it's, it's just very, very tied to everything I ever did or thought about. And specifically, I remember being a kid and you know, knowing I wanted to be in entertainment and noticing that if there was a school assembly or even just watching TV, it, it was never... It was never an indigenous person. It was never a Métis person uh, for uh, for me to look up to. And I don't know exactly how I formulated it, but I was kind of like, I'd like to be that. I have distinct memories of being um, being a kid and 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 thinking to myself um, how cool that would be. That is incredible. And, and tell us about where you grew up and where you're living now. Oh, man. That's, yeah, I mean, it's a little complicated. Um, I grew up in Vancouver with my dad yeah. and then partially in Hawaii with my mom, which is a long story, yeah. um, but uh, but a true story. So yeah. And then now, I'm, at times, I've been a bit of, a nomad just because of the job and, and touring and winding up different places or, or shooting something in whatever city. But uh, COVID really planted me in Vancouver where I'm lucky enough to live. Yeah. So Charlie, I'm going to use the term playwright because I just love that. It was in one of your bios. But if yep. you had to pick one of the three, and I know it's very hard for a Renaissance person. It's like asking Leonardo da Vinci, are you an inventor, a sculptor, or an artist? But of the three, what do you, what maybe if you could pick just one, playwright, musician, actor, or thespian, which of the three kind of, you can only pick one? I mean, <laughs> my cop-out answer is yeah. that they're all more or less identical. And uh, in kind when of, you're on stage... Uh, you're, th- you're acting yeah. on stage. You're writing on stage music. Okay, okay, I got it. That's a good cop out end. <laughs> and kind of in indigenous tradition, it's all <laughs> storytelling. I think that that's kind of what I think about it in in my heart of hearts. Um, yeah. That um, 
essentially like yeah every time i go on stage it's it's very similar to doing a play in the sense that i have the same script which is the lyrics of the same songs and yep. like like a play it changes slightly every night depending yep. on what everybody is feeling in the room so um so i think those two things are very similar and then writing you know whether i'm writing a script for a film or writing lyrics for a song it's really just the, the slightest tweaks to get it where it needs to go in kind of both mediums and and honestly like i get that question a decent amount obviously okay yeah <laughs> it's pretty weird and ambitious to, to kind of not be entirely a specialist but my two kind of things that i like to kind of talk about with it is donald glover kind oh, of yeah that's a really, great yeah because people would ask me that a lot in 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 very like aggressive ways at times and, and his background was a writer before he acted on community so that's yeah yeah and then decide to also be you know one of my favorite musicians yeah. and and you know have a lot of intelligent things to say about where yeah. the world was going. And yeah. I think This Is America is my favorite music video yeah. of all time. I'm incredibly inspired by and his ability to try it all. Yeah. And I think the other thing, I think because I sucked at everything for so long, like nothing really comes naturally to me. I don't really have a problem sucking at things. Yeah, That's going to sound like a bit of a contradiction considering how much like perfectionism lives in me. Yeah, but there's a part of my brain that I can activate that's really um, gorgeous sometimes where, um, you know, if somebody's really like tearing apart something I made as a writer, I can think to myself, oh, not even a writer. Like, that's fine. Like, <laughs> you know, like I, you know, I do, I'm a musician and an actor. And it's funny if those things kind of tank, I can kind of start saying to myself, well, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, writing's the thing that maybe I'm good at. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't no. know. Like that's very, that's very, uh, very, very master of none. But I'm so, I'm just so passionate Amazing. about all of it, and I get in rooms of people who are really, really good at all those things, and yeah, I'm just incredibly inspired. So yeah, yeah, I really don't mind being the least talented person in most rooms. Well, I'm going to disagree with 4.3 million <laughs> other people who have listened to Southern Comforting, Hotel Mira, yeah. which is the band that you're a lead singer in. I want to play one of your songs. I'm going to play it off my phone here. I want to play okay. Speaking Off the Record. Again, okay. just on Spotify alone. This doesn't include Apple. doesn't include record listens or CD listens and tape cassette listens and all the other ways, radio listens. 1.7 million people have listened to this song. I want to just play a small portion of it. And Charlie, I'd love your, your thoughts and, and tell us a bit about this song. Sounds great. 15 of my closest friends Walked me right up to the ledge Everyone loves you, they said So why do they leave me for dead? Speak
Charlie. Tell us about that song and what that means to you. Essentially, it's really tied to the title, speaking off the record. And essentially, I was writing a song that was all of my thoughts that I thought I would never publicize, speak, let alone sing, because so much of it was like tied to this childhood trauma or just things I found embarrassing or shameful about myself. And I kind of put together, I was drawn to entertainment and I guess on some level being special, kind of with this idea that it would make all the pain and the tragedy kind of go away if I reached a certain point uh, or or number or, or what have you. And the song kind of tries to dispel that and and kind of tell some uncomfortable truths. And there's a lot of things that to me, were so specific to my life that were really tied to shame. And, and I was really, really quite afraid of releasing the song in terms of what people might say. And even like in certain instances, the specific people I'm singing about who had maybe wronged me or, or traumatized me in certain ways, I had a weird paranoia that they were going to find the song and that nobody was going to listen to the song or connect to it. But mm -hmm. the people who I was singing about negatively were going to find it mm -hmm. and then kind of with me or gaslight me if that's not how it went down. You're feeling sorry for yourself or kind of all the horrible internal monologues I've kind of had through various bouts with mental illness, essentially. So it was terrifying. It was mm -hmm. terrifying to release. And I remember at the time, I was seeing somebody who I was just over the moon with her. I just was counting my lucky stars. She was the best. And I think on some level, that kind of gave me this weird bravery of being able to release that song because I, I thought on one level or another, even if this tanks, it's important to me to make these statements. And I know that there's someone who cares about me and loves me no matter what. And it's it's really not about the the, the music I make or, or what have you. It was, it was about a really deep connection that we had. That's so amazing. with that one, sometimes I, I like to just credit her with making me feel good enough about myself that, that I was able to take that big risk. So it, there's, there's a lot, you know, to use a, a phrase of the kids, there's a lot to unpack with that yeah. song. Yeah, yeah. But to spin it positively, because that's what was going on at the time. And then me and that person did break up in like a in a way that, you know, I don't think that there's like any resentment. Either way, I think we still have love for each other in, in lots of ways. Then the song was going to come out. And I just didn't think anybody would relate to it or like it because it was so specific to my experience. And, and so much of my life has been really clouded with this idea of like, my pain doesn't count. I'm feeling sorry for myself. It's not that bad. So it was really this incredibly humbling and, and beautiful experience that that song ended up being our fastest growing and most popular song. And even musically, it doesn't have much of a chorus. It doesn't have the kind of benchmarks of what, what you'd think of a hit song. So I'm really proud of it in about a gajillion different ways. It's awesome. And it, it's such an important kind of time capsule for such a yeah. confusing time yeah. of my life. Yeah.
So question about being Métis and, and the influence mm-hmm. of the Métis music. Do we see much fiddle influence or fiddles uh, music pl- appearing in your, uh, your albums? Not yet. I haven't experimented with that yet. But my mom was telling me that her father, Buster, would break into a jig really, yeah. really often. Yeah. And I think it might have been the same jig that I was taught at a, uh, at a Métis Nation of uh, Alberta conference that I, that I got to be the keynote speaker of not long ago. So that was a cool moment in terms of like how that works. Sometimes I just see the echoes of like, what's important to me and and how i operate and and how kind of tied to the ancestry that it is i i I think about this feeling of not belonging or, or being from multiple worlds and i felt really really alone and alien in that and then i went to the conference for the first time to speak through my friend uh jeff mayhew who's also metis who recommended me yeah and being in a room of whatever, 350, 700 people who all have that same experience was really, really powerful for me, man, being being yeah. alone together and then kind of zeroing in on how historic that is, in particular for the Métis people not even being recognized as either yeah. white or white or indigenous. And yeah, kind of getting the, like drawing the short straw with both and then yeah and a, a history of you know brutally fought for and some of the stuff I've, I've gone through in my life has been capital t tragic and not fair and not cool <laughs> i sound like a surfer but but in particular i sometimes credit my resilience and persistence with the blood that flows through my veins and the legacy yeah yeah and and I think like, and um, quite honestly, at this point, my spirituality is more tied to that than I think anything. I think a lot about what my ancestors would think. Yeah. Incredible. So you working in the entertainment industry, uh, acting, writing, uh, music, you know, what does it look like around a kind of Métis visibility in an industry that typically... Métis people have been largely invisible. Uh, I've said this before. I'm always terrified that I'm somehow going to accidentally step on toes and seem like the Rachel Dolezal of any movement I'm a part of. <laughs> and, and those that don't know who she is, maybe explain who Rachel is for. Rachel Dolezal pretended uh, to be, is a white woman who, uh, it's more complicated than this, uh, but it's a white woman who pretended to be black and had a job, I believe, with the NAACP in a high-ranking gig and kind of was benefiting from this culture and teachings that she had nothing to do with. Yeah, just kind kind of the ultimate culture vulture i think the like kind of um the colloquial phrase we have for is pretendium so all that to say is that rather than my experience as as somebody pretty white passing i think it's just important to note how few opportunities there are for indigenous people in film and tv and how even when they do get to exist they rarely get to be the tellers of their own stories. And that's where the really amazing, unique, rich storytelling comes from is 
when it's as authentic as possible. Have you seen Rutherford Falls yet? No. So it's written by indigenous people. It's out of the U.S. So it starts, if you remember Andy from The Office, that actor. Yeah, uh, yeah Ed Helms. Yeah, Ed Helms. He stars in it. And it's all about him being kind of a, a sixth, seventh generation character of the, you know, the mayor of the founding of this community. And then the First Nations people who live there and their relationship. And and the indigenous people's uh, relationship, they own the casino in town and the business savviness of them. And what does that look like? And what does that mean for corporations that want to come in. And so it was all written by indigenous people, which is pretty cool. But again, much like uh, TV, even in Canada, you don't often hear it's typically First Nations and and sometimes Inuit, but I've yet to see ever a mainstream sitcom ever have Métis people in it. I've yet to, maybe you've seen one. I've Well, I almost starred in one, which was really cool. As, uh, and were you uh, a Métis? I was the second choice after a long process of auditioning to um, to play a character who was Métis and felt detached from his culture. And it was, it was listen, when that script came across my desk, when I was recommended for that, yeah. I was oh. like, here we go. This wow. is going to be rad. Is, is it so, in production now or where is it at? Yeah, it's a show called SkyMed. And okay. the character is called Bodie. So yeah, Cree Métis, like me. And yeah, that story is written in part by indigenous people, I believe. Yeah. And I wish them all the best with that production. I was, yeah, I was very flattered to be considered. Yeah. But up until that moment, yeah. zero things yeah. have come across and, my desk. And let's hope it's not only in production, but then gets put up. Maybe, maybe worst case, APTN picks it up. Oh, no, it's Paramount oh, Plus nice. in correlation with CBC, I believe. Oh, that's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, it's called, so it's called SkyMed. It's kind of like Top Gun meets ER. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, it's funny. There is an entire network, television network, that I have never gotten to audition for. And my more all-American actor friends, you know, have made living with this network. And, and, and you know, there's blatant white supremacy in the film and TV world. And it needs to be called out at every turn. And then of all the characters I've played... None of them have had brothers and sisters on screen or a mom and dad. And I think that's interesting sometimes to be like, huh. So that kind of the the phrase in the industry is like ethnically ambiguous. But but yeah, I've always thought that was like a weird thing in casting that you can kind of miss out on because, you know, often casting comes down to we cast the rest of the family. Yeah. Now we're casting the son. The mom yeah. and dad are cast, and and if they're both white, I'm out of the picture. Yeah. And then you look at my filmography. You know, if I had, yeah, Let's for the not, most part, you were a uh, vampire though in uh, Supernaturals. Let's not forget about that. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. Vampire number one. Let's not forget about that. Often filmed in Fort Langley. Good old Supernaturals. I have a name, and I think I'm Stu. Yeah, oh, but, um, oh, but then good. I was credited okay. as Vampire One, which is always cool. Yeah, uh, but um, <laughs> um, but a recurring role was, in Jan TV series as Nate. Both those experiences were really cool. Supernatural was like an interesting thing because I'd been auditioning for that show, yeah, for years and years and years, yeah. and there was like a part that I almost got on that show in the final season that. Um, would have been really significant 
And then it, it didn't go to me at the last minute. And then they were kind of like, we have seven more episodes to cast. We're going to try and get you something. And that's kind of where the Southern Vampire role came from. Oh. So I need to ask, you got a thank you credit from the open house. A special thanks for that. Yeah. Well, Angel and Suzanne are friends of mine. Okay. And they're the directing, writing duo behind that and Hypnotic, uh, which is their more recent film uh, that did really, really well on Netflix. And I donated to their Kickstarter or something, I believe. Cool. That's awesome. It's very cool. Yeah. So being in Vancouver and kind of like down, like kind of in the kind of urban area, do you still feel a connection to your Métis community? Or what does that look like now as kind of like a young adult Métis person? And how do you stay uh, connected to the, the culture and the community? That's a good question. Um, and, may, and maybe it's very difficult at this stage of life. And maybe it's more, uh, maybe it looks like well, maybe the Métis needs to create a charter community in downtown Vancouver. That'd be kind of a neat urban core Métis. We got the Métis Nation of uh, BC out here, which is yeah. cool to check in with and yeah. you know having a beautiful headquarters right in surrey right off yeah. the sky train easy to get to yeah and uh my my, my metis friends i'm in contact with and specifics of kind of the culture and the language and the things of that nature yeah. oftentimes i feel detached and i'm happy anytime i'm embraced by those communities and, and I get to do anything to participate or boost or perform or, or whatever with them. But in a more unfortunate and cynical sense, I think it's mm-hmm. impossible to forget that you're indigenous while the world continues their ongoing genocide. You know, me and my brother live in the same building and had to read about these kids and in these residential schools and that's it's just in yeah you just feel that pull and that significance and like i said you're just reminded yeah i don't know you know when you think about how how um trying to find a word that's more eloquent but i'm not going to be able to like i can't think of a more over kind of people and circumstance so i i don't know i just yeah i often i can't not think about the complete lack of equality when it comes to indigenous people so unfortunately sometimes that's the lens i'm seeing it through more in just the more modern you what's going on right now for these people and how my privilege needs to be leveled at absolutely every turn mm-hmm. to help because along with these being my people it's also just absurdly i don't understand how people can't see the blatant tragedy and mistreatment thank you for sharing charlie i hope that makes sense um th- there are not words no there's no better words to put to something so devastating so i'm gonna play a, a song here and i want you to tell us a bit about this after
Charlie, tell us about that song. Southern Comforting, 4.3 million listens on Spotify alone. Kind of a sleeper hit. Didn't... Came out in 2014? Yeah. Yeah. And I wrote it long before that. I, I wrote it like... It was a song I wrote as a teenager. There's this video I found of it kind of in my Facebook memories of, of me playing it on the acoustic guitar. Yeah. And I'm... With that song... I really want to, from where I sit today, I really want to like celebrate how how much I was putting myself out there and yeah. trying to tell this story and, you know, being young and still able to write something that, that, that people like to this day and can parse meaning from in their lives. Like there's something clearly universal about what I was getting at. Uh, <laughs> which again, it's like this total cosmic punchline because it was so personal to what I was going through. Yeah, I, I mean, I love the lines about the liquor habit fills the liquor cabinet, but we still blame our folks. And those hipster b- with their catchphrases, oh, I don't get the joke when they say Southern comfort's comforting, isn't it? When your feelings aren't feeling magnificent. But yeah, I don't know. Like I grew up around a lot of addiction so i think that that's what that song is about more than anything is just like the way alcohol plays this major major role in kind of everybody's lives and yeah just kind of you know as a numbing agent or as a thing that makes you more social or whatever it is i think looking back i think that's I guess what I was getting at, but to be entirely open and honest, like I I can't really remember because most of my life I felt like up until very recently, maybe the last couple of years, but most of my life, I, I kind of felt like I was just like a pinball being bounced from place to place, like a lot of mental illness and a lot of kind of blacked out experiences. So yeah, with that said, my best guess of what I was getting at mostly was I was dating a girl named Megan at the time, whom I thought the world of and I I really, really enjoyed what we had together. And yeah, I was very intimidated by her cool friends. and, And I was just thinking about how alcohol was such a large character in my life. Thank you for sharing that, Charlie. Favorite Jan Arden song? Uh, Insensitive. Beautiful. Classic. Charlie, really, really appreciate you being on the show today. How can people find you and, and follow you and, and find your music? Uh, at Hotel Mira on TikTok, at Hotel Mira Music on Instagram and Twitter. Um, if you want to see what I'm up to kind of Outside of the band setting, yeah. my Instagram is at Charlie Kerr for real, F-O-R-R-E-A-L. Yeah, I think that's like, yeah, our latest album is called Perfectionism. I mean, you can stream the Jan show. I show up in the third season. And along with Michael Buble in one episode. Yeah. You put him in a headlock yeah. at one point. Yes, which is great. <laughs> no, no duet what came is- out of that, though. No Hotel Mira, Michael Buble. You know, he wanted to be treated as... An actor, and you know, yeah, yeah. as you got, you got to respect that. As, you can respect that. Precisely, as a musician, actor, yeah, yeah. I kind of just yeah. we kind of yeah. vibed in a way of where I was kind yeah. of really made sure to just um, 
just treat him like anybody else who got to set. Um, I think he dug that. That's great. Good. Yeah. That that was kind of my experience with him, but yeah, sweet dude. That's awesome. And those and those who are in Vancouver listening to the show, on occasion, if you end up walking under, say, the Canby Street Bridge, you might have the pleasure of hearing Charlie Kerr play a set for such groups as the BC Greens. So uh, you, you might just see some pop-up concerts once in a while by Charlie. So it's uh, it's pretty awesome. Like I said, you know, all of my nonsense aside, I'm always just want to bring it back to doing what I can with what I have and the tools I have to make the world a better and more livable place for for those who weren't born into the same kind of privilege as I was. But yeah, in particular with the Greens, I mean, it it just excited me that uh, there were a party that were going to do everything they could, not just to be the same major letdown to Indigenous people that almost every uh, politician has been in the past. And that's kind of, that's what I said to to Sonia when I met her, you know, I was like, you know, what, what, are, what are you going to, uh, what are you going to do? Like, you know, and um, yeah, so. That's kind of, that's a big reason that I was wanting to do that. And climate change is is very real. It would be cool to have representatives that aren't entirely more motivated by, um, yeah, corporate interests. Charlie, I appreciate you being here and joining us. And yeah, being such a great voice advocate, Northern Star. And I think for many probably, you know, boys and girls who are Métis and look up and see you acting musician, playwright, they can look up to that and say, I can see a Métis person in that role. I could be there too one day. So uh, it's pretty cool what you've been able to do for this next generation. It's a lot. I was going to say, what song do you want us to play going out? What's your favorite Hotel Mira song that you want us to kind of... I think this could be it for me. might be a good one to to go out on. That's a kind um, kind of anthem for people who feel reliably kind of alone in the world and undisturbed by what goes on okay here we go this is this could be it for me hotel mira we were chatting with charlie kerr lead singer This has been the Métis Speaker Series podcast. I'm Darian Kovacs. Thanks to Métis Nation BC for making this possible with funding provided by the Civil Forfeiture Office's Indigenous Healing Stream. You can listen to all of our episodes, learn more about the podcast, and sign up to the Métis Nation of BC newsletter to stay up to date on Métis news at metispodcastseries.ca. 
You can find out more about the music we're playing by Love Life by visiting SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lovelifeofficial, L-U-V-L-Y-F official, and link in the show notes for your convenience. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening device. See you again soon. Mina Kawapa Mitten. Thank you, Marcy, for listening. <laughs>